Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century. Brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by a good friend, Tom Nides, a managing director and vice chairman of Morgan Stanley. Tom previously served in the Obama administration as the United States Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources from 2011 to 2013. In 2013, Tom was awarded the Secretary of State's Distinguished Service Award, the nation's highest diplomatic honor. He was terrifically engaged in a lot of issues in Asia, including the support from the United States to Japan after the nuclear disaster. Tom, thank you very much for joining us. It's wonderful to have you here. Thanks, Kirk. Thanks for having me. So, Tom, let's start. First of all, what does a banker at Morgan Stanley do? So, you know, you you got a good-looking suit, you got good ties, good shirts, you fly around. But what do you actually do? What is your, like, what's your day like? What are you responsible for? Well, I'm not sure what quality my suit is, but hopefully (laughs) I can upgrade myself now. I mean, at the Asia Group here, I'm feeling a little underdressed. Um, To be honest with you, listen, you know, the firm like Morgan Stanley, we have about 65,000 employees. we got people all over the world. So part of my job is to uh, spread the gospel of the value of the firm. I travel extensively around uh, Asia, Middle East, Europe, talking to our clients, some of our biggest clients, sovereign wealth funds, um, individual investors, talking about how the markets are looking, how we think about the future. I have actual practical experience inside the firm. I have a bunch of functions actually report to me. I was the chief operating officer. I'm in the vice chairman. I've had all variety of different jobs. It's my third time at Morgan Stanley. So quite frankly, they're the only ones who will actually hire me. <laughs> so I go in and out of government. Uh, so I try to use not only my uh, public sector role to show people uh, in uh, finance how important government is to the daily lives of what we do, and likewise to explain to people in government how important the private sector is. So the combination of that is really what I spend my time on. So in terms of the regional approach, one of the things you told me, I remember when you were traveling, when you had just gotten back to the bank after serving uh, with distinction at the State Department, was that you were already seeing the regional shift in focus, that in the past, you know, enormous focus and continuing focus on Europe and the Middle East, but that you could really sense a shift in geographic momentum, more and more focus on Asia, and not just China, other parts of Asia as well. Well, I just uh, mentioned you when I got, uh, when I walked in here, I just spent the last six days in India. Uh, We have a very big operation in India, both in our investment banking operation, and we do a lot of our outsourcing, both in Mumbai and Bangalore. So I spent uh, four days uh, last week in India. Listen, these economies are huge. And I tell you, you spend a lot of time in these economies. If you're not in those economies every day, working on transactions, building a long-term business, uh, you're going to be at the losing side of a trade. Listen, we were the first financial service company of our size to be in China, mainland China. Uh, we have been there for almost 35 years. We know we're playing the long game. <laughs> you know, this is this is true with India. It's true with China. It's true with Japan. It's true with Indonesia. Um, these are markets that we are very focused on. And listen, it's hard. I mean, it's, these are not simple markets to maneuver. They're not simple markets to make money in. But the future is in Asia. Yeah. The future is in Asia. And from a firm like Morgan Stanley, we're celebrating our 85th anniversary this year. Uh, we know over the next 20 years, we're going to have plenty of people on the ground looking at deals, determining where the market is going. And that's how we think about our business model. 
It's interesting. I was not nearly the experience you've had, Tom, but I was on the board of Standard Chartered Bank for several years. And it was striking to me, this was a sort of a, basically a classic British merchant bank, you know, deeply involved in trade and energy that had been incredibly successful in the past in emerging markets, in, in, in Asia, in the Middle East, and elsewhere. But their business model was being put under enormous stress and strain, largely from rising indigenous banks and other financial institutions in these countries. Are you guys, is that also Yeah, the listen, case? we, we got to learn how to compete. Listen, we've got a lot of uh, barriers to get into the markets. Did I tell you about the yeah. barriers we have in China? Uh, we're spending an enormous amount of time in making sure we have the uh, not only the appropriate licenses, but to be able to do our A-share business in a successful way and to compete uh, with basically Chinese banks, obviously European banks. Uh, if we're given the opportunity, we can compete. And listen, interesting enough, even during this most recent flare-up on trade negotiations, it was never focused on the financial service industry because yeah. the Chinese want us there. They want the U.S. banks to be there. there there's no indication at all that they're not interested in having our technology, um, our financial prowess, our ability to do uh, domestic banking opportunities, especially those Chinese companies that want to go public, both on the Hong Kong exchange and ultimately doing business in the U.S. So I think, listen, I think it's a, it's an opportunity that our firm, among our competitors, understand. If you're not there, you're losing. And listen, you do have to play the long ball. I I, I joke about our India business. Uh, we've been there for a long time. We don't make a lot of money <laughs> in India, yeah. but you can't have a billion and a half people with English as a dominant language, uh, with education levels the way are living in a democracy. If you are not in India over the long haul, uh, it is malpractice. Uh, and you know, and the good news for a company like Morgan Stanley, because we've got a, a lot of our revenues come from the United States, a bunch of our revenues come from Europe, you can make strategic bets uh, in Asia for the long haul. And if you do, you will be rewarded. So Tom, let me take you back to your experience uh, at the State Department. We try to talk to our listeners a little bit about what government service is like. So the fascinating thing is that it's sometimes difficult to predict who's going to be effective in government, who's not. Sometimes people are wildly successful as academics or as think tank people or lawyers, and they come into government, it's a little bit more difficult than they thought. And likewise, sometimes people who you don't expect turn out to be more more effective in terms of making the trains run. So give us a sense of, like, you were known to be extraordinarily successful, not only at your your role at the State Department, but previously at USTR and other parts of the U.S. government, what what do you think are the essential characteristics about being effective in the government? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I used to say, if you're a jerk in the private sector, you're probably going to be a jerk in government. <laughs> That's probably a little bit simplistic. Um, I do think um, the one thing I think that um, I have learned when you go into government, you don't have the same necessarily the same tools you have in the private sector. It's private sectors. You can hire people and you can fire people. You can give them bonuses or you can take away money. Those strings don't exist in the government. What does exist is one thing that's very important. The, pe- the men and women, the career foreign service officers, the civil service officers, they care about one thing, and that's respect. And, and they want to support you. They want to work on your behalf. 
And all they're asking for is to be respected. And that means comes in all sorts of forms. That comes yeah. in being included in decision-making, um, listening to their advice. Not always agreeing, but listening. Having the decency to understand that they've been at this place a lot longer than you and I will ever be at the place. Yeah. And, and ultimately, when you see the State Department as it grows from institution, the same thing as you serve in the Defense Department. Same idea. Listen, you can... The military has um, obviously a command and control, but at the end of the day, I don't care if you're a flag officer. If the if the men and women who are working for you don't respect you, you can get nothing done. So I think from my perspective, those of us who have been lucky enough to go back and forth from the yeah. private sector to the public sector and from the public sector to the private sector, I constantly ask, what's the difference? Quite frankly, there isn't very much difference. What The reality is in both cases, people want to be respected. They want to be treated fairly. Uh, they want to get stuff done. They want to be held accountable, but justifiably so. So I think it's a um, the people who the people who come into government from the private sector who demand immediate action. That's not what happens in the government because the government is is set up so political hacks like you and me who come <laughs> in can't destroy you know tens of years of 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 policy that they really want us to come in and. Being an incrementalist is okay. Listen, being an incrementalist, a lot of incremental change leads to a lot of big things. So I'm, I never believed that when I walked in the government that I was going to change the world as I knew it. We got a lot of stuff done when we, you and I worked together with Secretary Clinton. Um, I felt we achieved an enormous amount. Uh, but you have to have the attitude. You have to believe that the men and women that you're serving with care as deeply as you care about. And if they believe that, they will go to the end of the earth to make you succeed. Yeah. That's extremely well said. I, I don't know about your experience, but I had worked in a variety of other places uh, in government at you know a lot of other institutions, and I generally had not a very good attitude about the State Department. I was off, often against them bureaucratically. And then when I found myself there, I, I have to say I've never enjoyed a job more, and I never have enjoyed working with a group of people more. And I'm not sure I would work any other place other than the State Department. I feel that loyal and that, so I love the way you put it, in, in a tremendous sense of shared mission. And unlike the Pentagon, frankly, in the military, where people are just falling over themselves, say, thank you for your service. Foreign service guys, State Department officials do not get that same sense of public. In fact, they get targeted more and a greater sense of challenge doing their mission. So I, I just, I'd love to hear what you think, Tom, about about not not at a political level, but I worry sometimes. I talk to friends who are still at the State Department, and it feels to me like the institution is really struggling. And you know, when we say that, it feels like we're taking a political shot. But I think it goes beyond that. I mean, I really think the next government will have a remarkably difficult task in trying to rebuild the place. Yeah, I mean, I can take a political shot. I, I think my view of this is is that I go back to this word respect. And, and as you know, um, the, the current Secretary of State and the previous Republican Secretary of State, one of the things that Foreign Service officers and career people work at the State Department, they care deeply about resources. Okay? Yeah. No kidding. You look at the Defense Department and the, we used to joke at the State Department that the bands, 
uh, the budget for the bands at the Defense Department was more than the whole budget of the State Department. These are, these are like the you know brass bands. And yeah, stuff yeah, the guys, play, the, part, the guys, the, 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 the parade uh, bands, yeah, right? And exactly. now I don't think that I think that was always an exaggeration. It, but it's, not actually, so it's actually not an it's it's the truth. It's, <laughs> okay. the truth. So it's, Alas, so it's, it's a little depressing, right? Yeah. And so and these are the men and women. I remember I had spent time with General Petraeus in Afghanistan, and he would used to say, "I'm going to clear for the peace. Your job is to keep the peace." Okay. That the the, the relationship with between those two uh, institutions, the Defense Department was was like a a bond, but you needed resources to do it. So what happens is, the first Secretary of State comes in under the Trump administration. The first thing he says was, "We're gonna we're gonna cut the budget by thirty percent." Well, you and I both know the budget at the at State Department was never going to be cut by thirty percent because that's how it works. The the OMB puts out an office of management puts out a number and it's and everyone says it's fake budget nonsense budget, and then the Congress basically ignores it. Well, in most cases, the secretaries of those departments basically look to their career people and say, "Hey, listen." Forget what they just said. We're gonna, we're gonna, t- you know, we're gonna, we're gonna do. We'll, be, I'll fight your battle. In this particular case, this particular secretary said, "We're gonna do it. We're actually gonna cut the budget by thirty or forty percent." Now, if you're, if you're working in that institution, and the leader of that institution basically says you're gonna cut the budget by forty percent, how do you feel as a person? And 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 I don't. Again, I'm not. I, I'm not trying to be political here, and I understand because I've been on the same. You know, we've been in a situation where we work with you know OMB even under the Obama administration, where you get a slight cut, like you know one half of one percent, and I went nuts because I was in charge of getting the budget. It is a sense of pride that your secretary is standing up for you, yeah. And especially when we knew there was never going to get cut in the first place. So I think you had. You know that situation started. I think the whole situation with Secretary Pompeo now is problematic, given the fact that there's lots of foreign services officers are leaving. The perception, I'm not necessarily always saying reality, but the perception is that the secretaries are not standing up for the men and women in the institution. Mm -hmm. That is a job of a leader. Our job of a leader is to stand up and support the men and women who work for you. Now, if there are bad apples, you should get rid of them. I get all that. but So I think that there there has been a a perception at the State Department, because I go back to the fundamental thing I said earlier. It's all about respect. And none of these people are getting rich at the State Department, okay? Yeah. They're not working at Morgan Stanley at, like I am. Uh, they're not, you know, sitting around. These people have served all over the world. They're, you know, they're they're obviously getting paid, but nowhere near getting rich. Uh, they're, they believe in their mission, and they want their leader to believe in their mission. And I think that, to me, is the most troubling thing about it. I think, as you all know, that the, the fact of the matter is that a younger Foreign service officer not coming into the foreign service. Older foreign service officers are leaving at a higher rate. Whoever the next secretary of state is, the next president of the United States, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to repair repair what's gone on in the department. Also repair the perception that's gone. Yeah. And I listen. I'm not. I'm sure Mike Pompeo is a nice guy, and I know I'm sure he's trying to do the right thing. But the perception is terrible, and it has to be resolved. I'm just on on the issue of resources. I, I have to bring you into the current set of circumstances. Another institution that's critical to American purpose is also experiencing these cuts and the sort of the public 
the manifestation of those cuts. And I'm obviously talking about the CDC and other groups inside the U.S. government that have been cut at a time that it clear, it's clear that we're facing one of the great public health challenges of our time with the coronavirus or the COVID-19. But before we talk about that, I know you played a critical role in the State Department in assisting the Ebola response. And almost all of that infrastructure that was established at the NSC, the interagency capabilities that were designed to deal with a health challenge that spans countries has all been disassembled. Give us your experience. I mean, a lot of people now view that response that Ron Klain led, that you played a role in, as one of uh, just an enormous achievement that doesn't get a, enough attention because it was handled so effectively. Listen, again, I, I'm not smart enough to know exactly what the White House is doing and not doing. I mean, I think that the the idea of naming the vice president as the head of the Ebola crisis probably, from a strictly from a PR perspective, wasn't smart. I think that they, the idea that there was lots of focus on that all communications had to come in and go through the vice presidents or the president uh, or the Oval Office. Again, I don't think it gives people comfort. Obviously, one of the anxieties have been this the idea that they had people like Cludwell out there talking about you know, the stock market. And this is a health emergency. Um, obviously, the only thing we would care about is making sure that this that if this is a pandemic, that we control it in a way that needs to be done. I, this is not politics. Um, I don't think politics should play any role in it. I do think there's some suggestions that the the infrastructure that was set up uh, post uh, uh, the Ebola crisis was disassembled. Again, I'm not at the White House. I can't argue about what they didn't do or what they argued to do. All I really care about is you have the best people in the world in charge of this, that we take politics out of this. This isn't about... Democrats trying to make the president be blamed for a bad response or Republicans blaming Democrats for exaggerating the cause. This is serious. This is probably a pandemic if you describe it to be the case. Um, we will get through this, but we need to have the best scientists, the best people at the CDC, the best experts in charge of this, take politics out of it, and we need to resolve it. Now, There'll be, there should be lots of examinations of what went right or wrong. Why isn't enough kits available? Why haven't people been, why we haven't disclosed things the way we should disclose them? We can have all those discussions after the fact. But right now, I think it's the most critical part that both Democrats and Republicans, uh, both the media, face the situation where we're going to have to do this in a very systematic way. We've got um, you know, at our firm, we've got 65,000 employees. We've got people all over the world. Um, we're trying to, you know, follow the CDC. We're tr trying not to overreact, trying not to underreact. But I just want to take politics out of this and get ourselves focused on getting the right people in front of the cameras, in front of the press briefings, and, and basically focus on the tools that we need to make sure this doesn't really, sadly, hurt a lot of people. And I think we can get it done. And I think we're going to get through this. But then afterward, we do an after action memo yeah. needs to be looked at and figure out what we did wrong and learn from it. So, Tom, you know, we have a little firm, the Asia Group, and the decision. Not so little. I've been no, looking around here. It's sorry. beautiful <laughs> art. It's Thank gorgeous. You. Yeah. Thank you. But last week, we made a decision after a lot of consultation to suspend, uh, for the time being, travel to Asia, right? 
And I'll say it was a pretty hard decision, a lot of discussion and a lot of differences of view. Some people thought, you know, hey, this, like, you know, this is not, like, we face all these health challenges in Asia. If you travel, you got to, this is risk is part of our game. Others saying, no, you got to be prudent. This is really, this could, this could become, as you suggest, quite substantial. I can only imagine, like you in this role, central leadership role, making the decision to to cut back on travel with that many people. Give us a sense, to the extent that you can, how does a decision like that get taken? Do you also have the same kind of debates that play out as well? We had this debate on Friday. We, <laughs> you know, this was this is real time. We had a debate about we'd originally eliminated travel to Japan, uh, to Korea, to Italy, following CDC regulations. And China. And China, obviously. And if you were in one of those locations, you had to basically spend 14 days outside the office. And we, we were monitoring that quite closely. Obviously, the individuals were being tested and all the precautions you would take. The debate then on Friday was limiting all international travel. So we made the decision instead of saying eliminate only for business critical that those of us in senior management had to approve the people going. Remember, we have a lot of people in Europe. So yeah. going from one country to another is as simple as going from, as you know, from here going to Virginia or Maryland. So it's not as if it's a... Uh, you know, getting on an airplane for seven or eight hours. And then there was a real debate about should we eliminate or eliminate uh, domestic travel? The decision at the time was not to do that for people to use their heads if they were not feeling well to stay at home, you know, to cough into their sleeve. And we're to follow uh, the guides. That's why it's so critically important that this administration has the people out front who know what the hell they're talking about. Yeah. As much as I respect the office of the vice presidency, yeah. I really don't want to hear from the vice president about this. I want to hear from health experts about what they suggest we should be doing and take the politics out of this, get it out of the White House situation, a White House briefing room, get it in front of the office of the CDC, have the people that the American people trust. And we as a firm, which is a global firm, will basically be directed by that. And, and I think we've, so we've, when I say we've had a lot of hand wringing, 100%, because, you know, it's, you know, for us to say we're not, you know, letting people come from China, that's one issue. But if I tell people they can't come from the UK, they can't come from France. You can't, I mean, we, you know, we're a global business. So we're, we're trying to be sensible about this, realistic. But the most important thing we care about is the health and safety of our employees. So we've got to manage appropriately. What is a problem is there's a lot of disinformation out there. A lot of firms are doing different things. You know, some firms are making, you know, we have a big conference going on in, in San Francisco today. Lots of questions. Should we have kept the conference? I mean, so this is this is an ongoing. None of us have a playbook by this, which is the question for all of us. Should we be, you know, should we have a very concrete way to how do we manage this? But that's why I think the imperative part of this is making sure that the people at the CDC and those who are experts are helping us think this through. It was interesting. I was struck at the second news conference that the president held over the weekend, which felt very much to me like a reset, an attempt to, like, we're, let's start this again after highly political, this doesn't matter, 
you know, we've got this contained and it's all the Democrats' fault. But what was fascinating was that he began talking on some issues. And then when he started to stray into areas that perhaps he was not expert on, which is a pretty substantial territory, the health officials stood up and said, Mr. President, let me take that question, both on sort of how long it would take to develop a vaccine to questions associated with testing more generally. I think, like, you know, I think this is going to be an enormous test for the president and his team. And, you know, it just, as you indicated, still early, but you can find estimates that can, you yeah, know. Yeah, it can scare the crap out of you. Yeah. Now, I, again, I, let's, see how, let's see how it all works out. Um, I think you know, ultimately the facts that we know, the, the people who have gotten coronavirus by and large, that have sadly died, have people that have had underlying health issues, right? That's, I mean, that's a fact. That's yeah. not, I'm not, that, that's currently, that's the case, yeah. right? They're generally older. They have had some respiratory issues. They've had lung issues. Those are the people who have been hurt or killed by that disease. There is also a fact that there's a lot of people that, that has actually probably have coronavirus and we don't know it. Yeah. Okay. Cause it's been, you know, it's, it incubates for 14 days and you may never know you had it. You might have think you have slight flu symptoms. So there's some facts that we know how quote deadly, how much more contagious it is. Uh, time will tell, but listen, it's coming to the United States. It's already here. How bad it gets, how aggressive it gets is all about containment. It's also about washing your hands. It's all about if you're sick, staying home. There's some fundamental things that we're working at at, uh, uh, at the firm. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you find yourself listening to experts on the radio or on TV, and there's a massive public education. I put education in quotes going on right now about issues associated with this. I heard this morning, I had always taken great comfort in this whole issue of underlying conditions, right? But this doctor said, let me just tell you, 60% of Americans have underlying conditions. So that that is not really true. I worked out this morning. I feel really good. <laughs> Corona's not coming to me. So why don't you just tell me about the nature of the work? So when you face something like this, so you've got elements of the bank that are about thinking over the horizon, right? Like what could happen? What does the bank do to respond more generally? Do you find that uh, the bank as a whole is good about anticipating issues that could come your way? Or is like, you know, a lot of big institutions, you know, the future is is dark and you can stumble into it like anything else? Well, I think we're geniuses, okay, just for record. <laughs> but hypothetically, um, none of us were predicting the coronavirus, okay? Yeah. I mean, no one was predicting the rise of Bernie Sanders, okay? I'm not, I mean, there, no one, you know, could you have predicted two years ago the outcome of Brexit, right? Or yeah. do we know tomorrow or this afternoon what's going to happen with Bibi Netanyahu? I mean, it's just, it, the, the, yes, we have yeah. opinions, we have views. Did any of us predict the stock market would go down, you know, 3,500 points in eight days? No, I wish I would say we're geniuses and we predicted all that. No, um, I think it is. Do we have senses? Do we have views? Do we have opinions? Do those opinions change? Sure. I mean, you know, the reality of, you know, markets go up and markets go down. The trick is how you deal with the problems. And I always like to say it's never the crisis, but how you deal with it. And when you have firms like Morgan Stanley or the Asia Group, you look for advice and counsel. 
you try to figure out how to react to things. And, and because guys like you and me have some experience, and we've been through lots of crises, uh, we know how to handle it. We try to tell people how to relax and chill and try to move it forward. But I think it's, I think there is, um, I would be lying to you if you said that we've, you know, we've predicted all these things to happen. Uh, that would be silly and immature. But, you know, I do think what we're good at once we're facing these situations, how as a firm and as an industry, you know, things like from the Asia Group perspective, how do you handle it? How do you manage it? That's what we're good at. Yeah. So, Tom, I want to ask you personally. So, one of the things that you were well known for at the State Department and in other walks of life, and you've you've had a series of the highest level jobs in some of the most challenging um, areas. So at a personal level, what do you do to keep cool and to sort of, you know, make it so that, you know, you don't blow up in every set of circumstances? What are your, if you were to talk to a group of up and coming executives and you were going to give them advice about how to think about, you know, how to prepare better for making decisions, not the books, but just what's, what, what would you say? What has been effective for you? Is it exercise? Is it getting away from the office? What are the things that, that you would recommend, you know, for, to think about as you go forward? You know, um, I like, like to always say it's never the crisis, but how you handle it, right? But the difference between leaders and great leaders is how they handle bad times. Yeah. We're all great at handling good times, right? Think good times, we celebrate, everything's great. It's when when the grief hits the fan or the problems hit the fan, that's when the difference is between the, the leaders and the so-called leaders. Um, and I think that's really important. Number two, it's all about the people. You know, it's all building relationships. You know, you and I have worked together for a long time. Yeah. When you and I have had some tough conversations, we could get through it because you and I have known each other, right? Yeah. We've known each other for a long time. When you're a leader, it's really important to have in-depth relationships because when when times are lousy and when crises happen, you have to rely upon those relationships to get things done. And every time I've run a big organization or to, when I currently run a big organization, I'm constantly reminding people, this will not last. We will have, you know, this is a great, we're feeling good, things are great, but things will change. I'm not Mr. Doomsayer. It's just the reality of life. And so yeah. I think one is to understand what goes up comes down. Um, things will change, but it is about respecting people, building the right team, building strong relationships. And if you do it and you do it right, anything is manageable. You can get through anything. I mean, it just, the fact of the matter is with the, you know, and you'll, and you'll, and you'll see through one's career, the ups and downs. And if, and by the way, we're in the risk business. You've served in, you know, multiple government jobs. You've taken risks, right? You've started two, three businesses. You've taken risks. We're in the risk business. If you never want to fail, if you never want to, then you'll never succeed because if you don't take a risk, you don't have any opportunity. So the fact of the matter is, I tell people, if you want to just stay home, which is fine, and do nothing all day, great. Nothing's bad is going to happen to you. But if you want to get in the game, if you want to be a player, if you want to like try to change the world, if you like to try to do something, if you want to like, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to, if you want to get out there, that's what happens. I like to tell people when you fly really close to the sun, sometimes you get singed. It's how you deal with the singeing. It's how you deal with the crisis. But that's what makes life so interesting. Tom, this has been enlightening and interesting. We really appreciate you for joining us today. And thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time on Tea Leaves. <laughs>